Hello, everyone. Welcome to Christendom Conversations, broadcasting on Radio Christendom. We come to you from our campus in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. I'm your host, Mark Rolina, the Executive Vice President of the college. Christendom Conversations is designed to bring you the time-tested insights you need to help you live your Catholic life to the fullest. To that end, in each episode, we'll visit with a Christendom College professor or occasional outside guest to uncover for you some of the wisdom found in our liberal arts education and our Catholic faith. Today, we're delighted to have Dr. Ben Reinhardt with us in studio. Dr. Reinhardt is an associate professor in the Department of English, Language, and Literature at Christendom. He's also the college's academic dean, a job for which he deserves many thanks. Uh, tough one. We'll get a bit more into his background in just a moment. Dr. Reinhardt, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Let's begin with a prayer invoking Our Lady for our time together, as well as for a deepening of faith both here and around the world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy, Holy Mary, Mary, Mother of God, God pray, pray for us sinners, sinners now, now and at the hour of our death. death. Amen. Amen. Our Lady, seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, there's so many topics we could go into with you. Uh, hopefully we can at least scratch the surface today, uh, just giving our audience a sense about your background and some of the some of the things that you focus on here at the college. Um, we look forward maybe to going deeper on some other topics in the future, if you're willing to come back uh, for more conversation. Sure thing, yeah. Okay. Um, I wonder if we could start closer to your beginning. Um, give us a sketch, if you would, just of the path that led you to Christendom College. And you've told me before in, in other conversations that it wasn't quite the straight line path that you had anticipated. <laughs> no, I, uh, I never should have wound up here. So <clears throat> when I went to college, when I applied to college, I knew exactly what I, what I wanted to be. I was going to be a vet, right? I'd read the James Harriet series. And so I knew that I wanted to be a veterinarian. I applied. I was going to Purdue University's vet school. And my life was planned out. And then my senior year of high school, I did an internship with a vet and realized I wanted nothing to do with the whole business for the rest of my life. So I was set to go to a college, right? And now I had no major. And so I didn't know what I wanted to do. The one thing that I knew I didn't want to do was graduate school. I knew I wanted to do something, get a job, and get on with life without doing, you know, five to 10 years of stuff after college. But then sort of, you know, I bounced around from major to major. I started off in the ag school, then I went to history, and I decided I would stay in history just until I figured out what I wanted to do. And then all the options started to sort of drop aside. It was not an engineer. I'm not going to be a doctor, right? And then I thought for sure I was going to be a lawyer, which is a worthy profession, right? <laughs> but, uh, but I couldn't muster enthusiasm for that either. So eventually, it was New Year's Eve 2004, a good friend said, well, you sound utterly unenthusiastic about being a lawyer. I was like, that is correct. <laughs> yeah. Well, what would make you enthusiastic? And I told him then about this medieval English literature class I'd taken and how much I came alive in that class. And he said, well, why don't you do that? And so I did. I wound up going to Notre Dame for my master's and PhD. I converted to the faith at Notre Dame. I had been an Anabaptist before that. And then um, through my time at Notre Dame, I worked towards the dissertation, worked towards the PhD, and then Providence, uh, I wound up rooming with a Christendom College grad for a year and a half. Wow. Learned about the school, and then again, Providence, I'm on the job market, and a job pops up at Christendom College that 
looked as though it, it had been written just for me, and the rest is pretty much history. Well, I wonder if we could take it just a step back as a fascinating story. If, if you, you kind of hear these different conversions, um, saints and, and people that we all know, sometimes it's the material, the, the, the writings of the faith, somebody, you know, uh, Cardinal Newman or somebody who really touches them. Sometimes it's the people around them. So what at Notre Dame really captured your interest in terms of uh, becoming a Catholic and then you stayed on that path, obviously. Yeah, well, so. if we can actually jump back before Notre Dame, sure. I think that's where the story starts. Yeah. And I can tell the story in five different ways, but here's the simplest, I think. Growing up, as I did, I had a lot of unconscious bias towards Catholicism. I didn't understand a lot about it, but I knew I didn't like it, right? But then I started studying the medieval world at Purdue. And this brought me pretty quickly in, uh, to confront two very difficult facts. The first one of these is that the medieval world was profoundly Catholic. And I pitied the secularists who would study the Middle Ages. And I thought, oh, well, how hard it has to be to study something when you think that it's all nonsense, right? right? right. Um, but then I found myself thinking it's all nonsense because, well, you know, that St. Francis, he's got a lot of things figured out. My goodness, how he lives like Christ. It's a shame that he believes all that silly stuff about the Eucharist or the priesthood, right? Um, pushing a little bit forward, you know, you like Chaucer or you like, uh, you like Bede or you like, you like any of these medieval writers and you're drawn to them. And then it starts to feel like a conspiracy because they're all on one side and you're on the other, right? It is a conspiracy. So there was this cognitive dissonance yeah. that I was experiencing and, uh, and it started to sort of wear away at a lot of my unconscious biases and things like that. And as I'm dealing with this intellectually, right, there's also the personal side of it because I was very, very blessed to have a sweet and holy nun teach a number of my classes, right? And so as I'm learning from her, I'm starting to develop devotions to saints when I don't believe in saints yet, right? Wow. So I start to fall in love with Joan of Arc, and I, except I don't believe she's a saint, right? right. Um, but then Sister Anne, she so profoundly lived out her faith and she was so obviously in this sort of rapturous love with Christ that she became a sign of contradiction. I couldn't explain her away, right? So as I'm becoming deep in history and you know, Cardinal Newman says to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. So I'm, right. I'm becoming deeper in history and at the same time meeting Catholics who really understand their faith, who really live their faith and that already, even before I got to Notre Dame, had started to move me down the road. The nice thing about Notre Dame once I got there is it still was then, and I imagine still is now, a place where you can find what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. um, you can find all sorts of bad stuff there, but if you're looking for the faith, it's easy enough to find. So I made friends who were also converts or in the process of conversion. I made more Catholic friends. I started to study the faith more deeply. I realized that all of my favorite authors were already Catholic, right? <laughs> right, right? And then, so through sort of friendship, through reading, and through a divine conspiracy, right? Eventually, I, I came into the church. Wow. So, and we, we're going to get into, uh, hopefully, a little bit about the power of literature in general. But if you've re if you read a work before the conversion, coming back to it must have been a fascinating thing. Just a richness there maybe you didn't notice before. Uh, oh, oh, most definitely, right? It's like reading with eyes... Uh, with eyes open for the first time. And, you know, it could be a book that I'd read since childhood, right? Mm -hmm. If you read 
if you read Tolkien or something like that, as I had done half a dozen times before I converted, it's different when you read afterwards. Much more so, much more so when you're dealing with medieval literature, or if you're dealing with someone, well, let's say like Chaucer, if you're dealing with someone like any of the Anglo-Saxon poets, if you're dealing with anyone who came from that world where, where Catholicism was the heir, it's so much different to read it, breathing the same air as they do, assuming the same things. Uh, it's transformative, really. Wow. Well, it's a good segue to just the general concept of the power of literature. So it seems, at least from the casual observer, that literature can can uh, reach people maybe in a way that other types of writing just kind of fall short in. And, and I wonder if you might speak to that a little bit. What is, what is it about literature that really seems to capture our imagination maybe speak a different uh, sort of language in terms of our um, desire to go deeper. Mm -hmm. So so I think what literature does is it makes concrete the moral and metaphysical philosophy of the person who writes. It makes it concrete and it makes it very, very attractive, Mm -hmm. right? So if you're reading Jane Austen, you're going to get Jane Austen's world, her morals, her, her customs, her virtues. You'll get all those things communicated to you while you're just reading a story. Mm -hmm. You're enjoying the story, but as you're doing this, all these things come, they come as arguments, as suggestions. They come in the same way that it does in a relationship with a person, Mm -hmm. right? If you hang out with a certain kind of person, you start to imitate those people, right? Because you see how they live, you want to be like them. Mm -hmm. They make their morals concrete, right? Literature is gonna do the same thing where the author, insofar as they're successful in embodying the way they see the world, they don't come at you with arguments. And if someone comes at you with an argument, you're already, you've got your shields up, Mm -hmm. you're ready to defend, you're ready to argue, you're ready to push back. But if you've already surrendered yourself to the imaginative process of literature, if you're sort of drifting along with the stream, enjoying the plot, enjoying the characters, you find yourself unconsciously imbibing the images, the ideas, the philosophies of the author. And that's where literature, good or bad, is so very, very important, right? This has been recognized since the, the mm-hmm. time of Plato, that people will imitate in their lives what they see in literature, right? Plato gives you this, Philip Sidney gives you this. It's one of the continual themes in classical literary criticism that literature produces in the reader what it portrays to him. Mm-hmm. And it does it without the reader even knowing it. All right. Well, and that's... It, it, you talked about for good or ill, and now everyone can publish, right? It seems like mm-hmm. so. Um, I guess give us that sense about the importance of of good works, immersing yourself in that. Where would a person even start uh, if they didn't feel like they were sort of well armed to even know how to navigate that? Oh boy! So I, I would say two things. The first and most important thing is just to read a lot of good books. They don't have to be the great books. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be the Iliad or the Odyssey. It doesn't have to be Dante, but reading good books, right? Jane Austen, she might be great, but so that's not quite fair. <laughs> but but you're Jane Austen. If you're looking at children's books, Beatrix Potter, mm-hmm. right? right? Lewis Carroll. These are good books that have a good, healthy world portrayed in them. So the first thing to do, especially for the young, is to develop a moral imagination by the reading of good literature, right? When people are moving into high school, moving into college or post-college, if they want to do this, I would still say there's a fundamental importance about about cultivating taste. If you mm-hmm. don't cultivate taste, 
you'll never get it. Um, but aside from cultivating taste, then the next thing to do would be to read to read critics who will show you what the critical process looks like, mm-hmm. how to engage with li- literature rather than just surrendering to it. So my favorite literary critic ever is still probably C.S. Lewis. There's okay. not everything that I agree with, mm-hmm. but if you read an essay of Lewis on Hamlet or if you read him on Dante or if you read him on Chaucer, you can learn to imitate the same moves that he does for saying, okay, here's what matters in a book. I'm going to pick out these things. I'm going to look for these themes. I'm going to pay attention to how the book is affecting me, to how it's advancing um, it's advancing its arguments, how it's constructing the beauty that it, the author wants you to see. So once you've developed the moral imagination, once you've developed taste, the next thing is to turn to critics who show you how to exercise that taste. Okay, that's great. We'd love to have you back at some point to talk about the Inklings and, you know, such a fascinating history when, uh, you know, the English were really at their best there, it seemed. So, um, but I wonder, there's a particular period in uh, history and literature that seems to capture our fascination, um, and you've taught on this and and researched on it. I wonder if you might talk to us about um, works that deal with King Arthur and the Arthurian uh, legends. It seems that even some authors retain really a romantic uh, love for the chivalry of this period. So what is it about King Arthur that captures our imagination and and what is there for us to learn there? Mm -hmm. So King Arthur is one of the four great matters of medieval romance, right? You've got the romance of Arthur, you've got the romance of Charlemagne, you've got the romance of Rome the Great, and you've got romances of the Crusades, right? But Arthur is one of the great subjects of medieval romance. And, it's, and he's the great subject of romance in the English language. So let's talk about the idea of Camelot, right? This idea develops from about the end of the 1100s through about 15, we'll say about 1500. And it's the embodiment of order in medieval Christendom. It's for all these authors, whether it's Chrétien de Troyes or Thomas Mallory or take your pick. The idea is Camelot is as high as we can get, it's the best we can reach towards as merely mortal men, Mm. right? And it's this vision of order, it's a vision of hierarchy, it's an image of a society that's sort of come fully alive in all of these beautiful colors and all the rest. And of course there are problems, and the question is always, how long can this perfect society endure? Mm -hmm. Can a perfect society endure? Or will human frailty, malice, envy, whatever else, tear it down? And of course Camelot always falls. But the image of Camelot is so powerful that it captures our imaginations, whether you're talking about Elizabethan poets or the Romantics or 20th century authors or even all the way, you know, go to 1960, right? And it's John it's John Kennedy in the White House and we want to describe this American golden age. It's Camelot, right? So Camelot represents for, I think it's fair to say, Camelot represents for English-speaking peoples the best thing that we can aspire to. And it's become an archetype in our minds that we can't get away from. Mm-hmm. And the question is whether it can be embodied in uh, any given society. And if we can embody it, whether or not we can preserve it. Because we keep coming back to that. Whether you were, like we, we talked earlier, John Steinbeck, mm-hmm. people as, as diverse as John Steinbeck mm-hmm. through Charles Williams, right. right? Two men who are not united by very many things right. are both obsessed with this idea of Camelot and the order that Camelot represents. Right. Right. We could probably spend a whole program on just that. We probably could, yeah. (laughs) We do need to take a quick break for some messages, but we'll be right back with Dr. Ben Reinhardt on Christendom Conversations. 
Looking for a life-changing experience that will strengthen your child's faith and immerse them in a joyful Catholic culture? Send them to Christendom College's High School Summer Program, The Best Week Ever. Located in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, The Best Week Ever is the most popular, well-attended, and highly ranked program of its kind. 50% off with promo code RELEVANTRADIO. Apply today at thebestweekever.com. Welcome back to Christendom Conversations, where we offer you time-tested insights to help you live your Catholic life to the fullest. I'm Mark Rolina, here with Dr. Ben Reinhardt, Associate Professor of English Language and Literature at Christendom College. So we just got done talking about Camelot, and now I wonder if we might spend a little time on another very significant work. Um, You're involved in a fascinating project related to the epic poem Beowulf. Now, many people, I think, have had to read Beowulf in AP English in high school or in a literature class in college, maybe. But set the stage for us a little bit. What is this work, Beowulf, and why is it important? All right, so Beowulf is the first great poem in the English language. Now, of course, uh, it doesn't look anything like modern English. You know, you can pick up something from the 14th century or the 15th century, and you can basically hack your way through. Beowulf is completely different. Hwat, Wei, Gardena, and Yardagum does not sound at all like we have heard of the Spear Danes in the days gone by. So mm-hmm. it's the English language, but it's the English language as it was spoken 1,200, 1,300 years ago. But it's still the first poem in our language, and it's both a truly great poem in its own right. It's not just about killing monsters. It's not just about, uh, it's not just about you know, this heroic man or anything like this. It, it's about, on the one hand, it's about the limits of human life. It tracks the process that everyone will go through, sort of the rising of youth and then the decline of age and the limits of mortality. It's also a beautiful witness to the process of conversion and Christianization in England, Hmm. right? So it's written, people vary, but I would stand with the traditional view where it's probably written within a few generations of the Christianization of Anglo-Saxon England, right? So it preserves a, uh, a witness to how the culture became Christian, right? The ideas of Christianity starting to permeate and transform what it means to be a hero, what it means to be a good man, and what a society ought to look like. Okay. And and maybe just like, you know, two-minute sketch of, of what is what is the actual flow of the poem, what, what's happening in the narrative. All right. So we were speaking about Camelot before the break, right? right, right. As this source of, as the summit of human life. Well, for the old English, it wasn't Camelot. Mm-hmm. It was Herod. And Herod really for Germanic peoples of the migration period, occupied sort of the same um, sort of the same mental space as Camelot. So we're in the greatest court in all the world, full of the most noble and the most heroic people. And it's being ravaged by this monster demon Grendel, right? The poem then centers on Beowulf, the hero, who comes to the great court, who kills Grendel, cleansing the court, then he has to fight Grendel's mother. And then we jump forward a full 50 years, right? Mm-hmm. Now the king is old, he's, uh, he's at the end of his life, he's become king of his own native country, and then uh, through an imprudent act, a dragon is awakened, and then he has to fight the dragon to defend, defend his nation, and he dies in the attempt. So it's a very, very simple story, right? right? On its own, it's just, as some have called it, a wild folktale about this sort of burly hero. Right. But what the poet does with it, and the way the poet writes it up, and the reflections he brings in about 
what heroism should be, what human life ought to be, make it something completely different and make it worthy of study um, in this or in any other age. And then you're involved in a project relating to it. So give us a sense of what that what that is. <laughs> so I've got a new translation of Beowulf coming out with Clooney Press, with the Clooney Classic mm-hmm. series. And I was, uh, I was drawn to it for a variety of reasons, some purely selfish mm-hmm. and some sort of more altruistic, right? The selfish reasons were I wanted to do it and it sounded like fun. So I, I was able to immerse myself for months and months in the world of Beowulf and in the poetry. It's something that I I Mm -hmm. wanted to do for a long time. So those are my very selfish reasons. Um, My altruistic reasons are I wanted to have a better translation available for my students, and I wanted a better resource available for teachers. Sure. So the world of Anglo-Saxon England is completely foreign to us, right? Everyone knows who I mean when I say King Arthur. Right. And everyone can conjure an image of Knights of the Round Table. Most people can do the same for Odysseus or Achilles or something like this, right? The world of Greece and Rome and the High Middle Ages, we all sort of know what's going on here. But this is such an alien world, right? We all read it, but it's an alien world where we don't quite know how to, uh, how to navigate it. So I also have notes and commentary to help teachers. And for, this, for the student's sake, I've got what's probably at times a painfully literal translation. But if you're trying to read a poem as a student and trying to understand what's going on and construct an argument, you need to make sure you're actually constructing an argument on what's actually there. Um, there are also a whole host of political reasons why I did it, but that's probably a subject for another uh, sure. another time. Um, Beowulf is under siege in, in okay. many circles, so this is sort of a railing against the dying of the light kind of thing as well. Sure, sure. And I know there was a, a feature film a few years back was it, oh. was it awful? I just have a sense that you would say that, but I don't know if that's right. It was yeah. it was horrid. It, it really was. So it's the Robert Zemeckis motion capture CGI Beowulf, and in addition to all the technical problems that come along with something like this, one of the biggest problems that actually bedevils the appreciation, the study, and the reception of Beowulf is people who who glom onto it, mm-hmm. so seldom understand what's going on, right? So rather than looking at the portrayal of a positive heroism that has to navigate between sort of desire for greatness and humility and courtesy, and that's what Beowulf mm-hmm. is continually grappling with throughout the entire poem, Beowulf is just reduced to this sort of Arnold Schwarzenegger-esque, sure. you know, yeah. Hulk smash, something like this. Right. That's the first problem. The second problem is that the Christian, the sort of genteel and courteous Christian mentality of the poet, no one ever sympathizes with this. Mm -hmm. No one has even the remotest sympathy. And this is why there's, it's one of the pernicious things actually about the study of the Middle Ages at all in the modern modern Mm -hmm. world, but especially Anglo-Saxon England. We like sympathy for the devil. We don't like the Mm -hmm. idea that there can be clear right, clear wrong, and someone who despite flaws, is clearly acting for the right, and someone who, despite his flaws, is clearly acting for the wrong. So, in the movie, Grendel is made into a sympathetic character. He's Mm. actually sort of a freak of nature, and bizarrely, the music at Herod hurts him. He's just misunderstood. Grendel's mother is made into a succubus, who's also vaguely sympathetic, and we're we're supposed to sympathize with her plight. And then the heroes, everything good and noble is degraded, right? Right. If we think back... 15 minutes ago, to the idea of 
the moral imagination, right? Mm -hmm. Opposed to the moral imagination is the diabolical imagination. The moral imagination delights in truth and order and nobility, and it wants to imitate those things uh, in its own life. The diabolical imagination rejoices in the perverse and the subhuman. And what we have increasingly in the last 50 years are people with diabolical imaginations representing sure. representing these products of the moral imagination. So every hero has to be corrupted. Every villain has to be sympathized with. And so it pushes you into a kind of relativism and it pushes you into into a mode of consciousness where you can't even begin to appreciate the good. Right. So I went to that movie with a, a group of my graduate school friends. I'm sure we were utterly obnoxious by sort of like <laughs> shouting and throwing things at the screen, right? But I found it particularly disturbing because of the ways that it couldn't even begin to comprehend what nobility looks like. Sure. When it makes sense, you see this even with Disney films right now, Maleficent or Cruella de Vil, these are all movies meant to give you sort of a more sympathetic view of the of the villain. That's, of course, yeah. That's a great insight. Because don't we all have a little villain inside? Well, we, we do. We're, we're yes. sinners. Yes. But there's a difference between recognizing that the world's complex, but that there's still good and bad and that we praise good and, and reject the evil. And asking you to do, as you do in Maleficent, Cruella de Vil, to sympathize and sort of wallow in mm -hmm. the ambiguity and the darkness. And that's where the massive push has been, like you say, for, for decades, right? Right. Well, just maybe one last topic before our time is up here. Um, back in March, you wrote a piece for the Catholic World Report on Gnosticism evident in the present moment and kind of continuing a thought that had been started uh, by Ed Fieser. Mm -hmm. What is Gnosticism? Why has it reared its head, do you think? And what is it doing to us? What is Gnosticism? Why is it reared its head? What's it doing to us? These are yeah. three very big questions. I'll try. To, I, sure. I know we're short on time, so I'll go as quickly as I can. Gnosticism is, is in many ways, the perennial heresy, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's the denial of the goodness of the body, of the goodness of creation. It's the exaltation of this world of spirit, uh, of mind, of secret knowledge, right? It's the heresy that denies that our Lord came in the flesh because how could he be embodied? And it's the heresy that the church has had to battle time and time again throughout the centuries. Now, time's too short to go into everything, but, but the one thing that really impelled the Gnosticism piece, about five years ago, I started to notice a generational shift in our students. The older, older millennials or older exennials or not exennials, whatever they are, the, the students who were born in the mid 90s mm -hmm. were not digital natives, right? And then there was the shift that started to come as students who were born in the late 90s, early 2000s, never knew a world without smartphones, never knew a world without immediate immersion in the internet, right? Mm -hmm. And this is the change. So we're all of us today completely sucked into this false world, this false reality, this disembodied reality of social media, smartphones, um, a perpetually watching <laughs> surveillance state, this all-knowing. We've got all this around us all the time. And it draws us away from the natural human interactions that we should have, these face-to-face -face things like you and I are doing right now. And instead, we interact only in this world of pure spirit. And it's massively degrading, mm -hmm. right? Um, if you watch the, the factionalism, if you watch the nastiness, if you watch the, the division that's sown on 
social media, on Twitter, right? If you watch how people get completely absorbed in this little three by five world, just six inches from their face, for hours and hours on end, we're no longer living as embodied creatures. We're no longer living in the world that God created. We're living in a prison in our own minds. And that's that's why I wrote the article, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know if the article will do anything, but at least it's worth being aware of for, for me, if for no one else, right? The smartphone's not going anywhere, but we can at least change how we engage with it. Absolutely. And many of the, the subjects that you touched on today, it seems like the consistent theme we're we're kind of getting stuck on the sixth day of creation, you know, not, not taking that step forward past mm-hmm. our animal nature into something that's a little more um, exalted. I, I think yeah. that's probably fair, yeah. <laughs> well, unfortunately, we're out of time. Dr. Reinhardt, it has been a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you, Mr. Alina. Yeah, we hope you'll be willing to come on the program again sometime. Um, it concludes our show for today. We would like to thank everyone who's tuned in. If you have any questions or comments about today's show, you can email us at radio at christendom.edu. For more information about how Christendom College is helping its students learn the truth, live the faith, and thrive, please visit our website at christendom.edu. Until next time, in this year of great grace, let us remember to turn often to St. Joseph when we see things in the world seemingly spinning out of control. He will help us to keep our peace and find our way. In fact, St. Francis de Sales reminds us about St. Joseph that nothing will be refused him, neither by Our Lady nor his glorious son. Let us continue then under his patronage to seek to understand the true, the good, and the beautiful things that surround us. And we hope to play just a small part in pointing you towards some of the rich treasures that our faith and a liberal education can offer you as you navigate the challenges of your life and vocation. Have a great day, and God bless you.